Let's turn together, please, to Psalm 27. Because summer is such an unusual time with people traveling all over the place, and we have a lot of people on vacations right now and summer sports, we like to take a little bit of a break from our normal verse-by-verse teaching through books of the Bible. And it has been our tradition at North Point for a number of years, and I think you have done similar things at the former Berlin, to spend some time in the Psalms. And so we are doing that again this summer. Pastor Rick began that last week, and we will continue today. And our intention is to continue this for the rest of the summer. And after everybody's back from all of their various uh, traveling around the place and so forth, we will jump back into an individual book of the Bible and just go verse by verse through it, as is our custom here. As we dive into the Psalms, we recognize if you've spent any amount of time in them that there are different kinds of Psalms. The Psalms were given to us as a gift from God. The Psalms are a gift in the sense that they give us a voice for our varied emotions. God made us to be rational beings, that is, we can think and reason. God made us to be volitional beings, that is to say we have a will. But one of the weaknesses traditionally in Protestant, even evangelical theology, is that we have tended to focus so much on the rational and the volitional that we tend to underdevelop the affectional in people. The problem with that is that God created us in his image to have affections. Now, certainly God created us in his image to be rational, to think. God is wise. God always makes the best decisions. God is likewise volitional. God has a powerful will that no one can stop. And so being created in his image means that we have reason, we can think, we can, we can plan, we can develop wisdom over the course of a lifetime. Likewise, we have volition, we have a will, we act upon what we know to be best. But if we fail to underdevelop and underemphasize the affectional side of being an image bearer, we are cutting off part of who we are created to be. Feelings are very real things. Now, feelings can betray us, right? We should all be nodding our heads. Feelings are real. They're not always true. Perhaps you've heard it said before. But because our feelings can betray us, and sometimes we can be led astray by them, that does not give us an excuse to not pay attention to them whatsoever, because God has feelings, to put it very simply. God is affectional. God has affections, and he made us to have affections. And as we grow as image bearers, renewed in Christ, day by day, becoming more and more like the one who made us, one of the aspects of growing as a healthy Christian as a healthy son or daughter of God, is that our affections, our feelings, are brought into conformity with Christ as well. Certainly our minds and and definitely our will, our actions, 
but also our feelings. And, and in many ways, that's why the Psalms were given to us. So that head and hands and heart can be united together in harmony. Now, until the renewal, un, until the restoration, when Jesus returns and makes all things new, that's going to be a little bit messy, right? Right? We're not always going to reason perfectly. We're not always going to act perfectly. And we're not always going to feel perfectly. But that's why we come together. We come together to to see ourselves in the mirror of the word and to find ourselves degree by degree, little by little, becoming more and more like Jesus and becoming healthy worshipers. And it is our goal this summer as we spend time in the Psalms and their multi-varied emotional emphases that we can become a bit more intelligent about how we feel, about our affections, and a bit more healthy along the way. The Psalms were given to us to have a voice in a world like this, which is full of brokenness, where affections are constantly being battered against and fought against by a sinful world. And so we come to the Psalms again this summer so that we might worship our God in a healthy way and might grow in joy and rest and peace along the way. One of the main subsections or main categories is probably a better way to say it, of the Psalms are the Psalms of lament. Lament is not a word that we tend to use a lot anymore, but to lament is to cry out loud about our troubles. We tend to, in in this day and age and in this culture, go to two extremes. One extreme is to be completely shattered by the troubles that come to us, to, com- to be completely undone whenever we face trial. And the truth of the matter is, if we've been around for any amount of time, we, we know we will face trials, right? We have the gray hairs that are growing to prove that. The other extreme is to ignore them, to act as though they're not real, or similarly, to do everything in our power to run away from them. The problem is, in both extremes, we will never reach spiritual maturity and health, because the problems remain, and they will keep coming. So it does us no good, on the one hand, to be completely undone by the trials because that's forgetting that there is a God. On the other hand, it does us no good to act as though everything is fine because it's not. The Psalms of Lament are given to us, many of them, to help us deal with things in a much more healthy fashion. For the inevitability of trouble, of trial, of struggle is real. It's coming. And perhaps some of you today, I I know some of you today are in the middle of trouble. And the rest of us know that if we've just come out of some, some more is coming. 
When I was a kid, we had like three channels, right? Now, I know those of you who are older than me, they're like, we had no channels, okay? <laughs> you win. But to anybody who's younger than me, when I was growing up, we had three channels. I was the remote control. I was the human remote control. I had two older brothers and parents. And so whenever the channels had to be changed on the little dial, I was the human remote control that went and changed it. So we had like ABC and CBS and NBC. And I think Fox may have existed back then. There was a PBS channel. Uh, And we had the rabbit ears, right, on the top of the TV to make sure that we got those three or four channels in a fuzzy manner. But I remember, and I don't know what channel it was on when I was a kid, a show called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Who remembers The Lifestyles? Yes. Robin Leach, right? I assume he was British. It could have been a fake accent, but it sounded very real to me. And I remember as a child, like a six or seven-year-old kid, I don't know why I was watching this. I should have been outside running around or something. But I remember watching this show, and it was the extravagant lifestyles of the uber-rich, you know, and they didn't just have one big house. They had four big houses, and they all had yachts. And it seems like they never had, you know, saltines or, like, you know, shake-and-bake pork chops, which the rest of us, you know, poor people eat. They always ate caviar. In fact, that was part of the tagline at the beginning of the show, caviar dreams, right? Uh, I don't even know what that means. Uh, but but this, was, this was an insight into the way the uber-rich lived. And I remember being super, super intrigued by that as a kid. Now that I'm a grown-up, I don't have any illusion that I'm going to be uber rich. Now, the truth of the matter is, comparatively globally, we are rich, right? Comparatively globally, we are incredibly rich. But it doesn't take us long to drive to various parts of of our city and find the really, really rich people. But you know what? Their houses are impressive, their boats are impressive, all those things. I guess they probably eat caviar on their boats. But I'm not really intrigued by that anymore. And I think the truth of the matter is most of us aren't. We don't have this idea that we're going to live in the Hamptons somewhere sometime and have a yacht and eat caviar. Most of us don't crave that. But you know what most grown-ups like us, you know what most people of of age crave? It's not to be uber-rich. Most of us crave something more simple but fleeting than wealth. Most of us want equilibrium. Most of us want peace. Most of us want rest. Another way to say it is we want a world that has no trouble in it. And do you know why we want it? Because there's this nagging notion in all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve that this world isn't what it's supposed to be. That it didn't used to be like this, and it doesn't have to stay like this. That we were created to be in harmony with our God and with one another. And because of the hope that the Scriptures give us, there is coming a day when that harmony will be restored Dare I say, it will be even better. But we live in the in-between. In the in-between where sin has entered the world by our own willful rebellion and we are suffering all the consequences of it rationally and volitionally and affectionately. 
And in God's great grace, he has given us his word, and he has given us the psalms, and he has given us the psalms of lament so that we can struggle in the in-between. So at least a few times this summer as we work through the psalms, though we will be dealing with psalms of worship and praise and thanksgiving, we will delve into some of the psalms of lament, like today, to help give us a voice for the in-between. And so today we will examine Psalm 27, which is a psalm that is a bit hard to categorize. It is a psalm which has been called a royal psalm. David the king speaks in this psalm about his perspectives as a leader of the people of Israel, but it is also recognized as a psalm of lament. The king is lamenting his personal and his national condition. And this psalm we will find speaks to us of fear and faith. And a people like us who desperately more than anything else craves equilibrium, rest, and peace, a world where everything is just okay and we are at harmony with our creator and with one another, this psalm gives us a voice. And so, let's read together Psalm 27 of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. May God bless to us the reading of his word. The first thing we see today in verses 1 through 3, we'll just give you a simple outline for the day, is that we don't have to be crippled by fear. The Psalms of Lament typically follow this pattern. The psalmist laments, cries out to God. 
Then the psalmist asks God for help. Thirdly and lastly, the psalmist worships, praises, or thanks God. It has been noted that often the psalms of lament tend to end really abruptly. And that seems weird to us, those of us who are in trouble. You have to remember the psalms of lament were written after the fact, after people had had time to review their troubles. And they wrote these things down personally to, to preach to themselves and to others. We have a tendency to listen to ourselves. The psalms would encourage us to talk to ourselves. And the psalmists wrote these things down because they were talking to themselves. I'm in trouble, God. And sometimes the laments are very raw, which is encouraging for us because often we think when we pray, and in particular when we pray around other people, that we have to have very sanctified, cleaned up prayers. But the truth of the matter is, often the Psalms give us very raw insights into people's hearts in the midst of their deepest trials. They don't come in a sanctified way, cleaned up, saying to God, well, God, it's just kind of bad right now, and, and, and maybe you can see right now, and if, and if you don't mind, maybe you can help me. It's not how the Psalms of Lament go. They come to God in their deep distress, and then they ask God for help. And then they walk away trusting God, especially after the fact. This psalm of lament is a little bit different because it doesn't open up necessarily with full, raw lament. David, who speaks in this psalm, begins with a confession of faith. And he's communicating to us in these opening verses of Psalm 27 that that he, because he's talking to himself, And we, the audience, don't have to be crippled by fear. The truth of the matter is, the various psalms of lament are very good for us because sometimes whenever we're in the middle of trouble, the first and best thing we can do is just confess out loud how we are feeling, how we are experiencing the current trial that we're facing. But there are other times when we are in the middle of trouble that we feel relatively strong. We draw upon past experiences. And this is one of the great values of growing up, of getting older. You ever hear people say sometimes that they wish they could go back and live their lives all over again? I think that's crazy. I would never want to go back to my teenage years. Being a teenager is super hard. I'm raising one now. It's hard to be a teenager. You remember your 20s when you had no money and you were just learning how to be married to your spouse and you were just figuring out how to raise your kids and you were just establishing yourself in your career? I mean, there were good days, right? But those were hard days. In your 30s, you're starting to kind of get things figured out. In your 40s, you gain some little measure of respect. But by the time you hit your 50s, 60s, and 70s, you kind of know how to do this thing called life. I would never want to go back. Now, I have tons of regrets, way more than I would have time to articulate today, but, but I don't want to go back because life is hard. And experience is hard earned. But you know one of the things that happens along the way, the longer we walk with Christ through the years? We grow in confidence, right? 
When, when the next inevitable trial comes my way, I've experienced dozens, hundreds. And what has God done in every single one of them? He hasn't necessarily removed me from the trouble, but he has sustained me through them and he has proven himself faithful. And David speaks to us in verses one through three of Psalm 27 as one who has experienced dozens, hundreds, perhaps thousands of trials, but he knows that God will deliver him and he doesn't have to be crippled by the current trouble that he faces. David calls the Lord his light. David knew that to be in trouble sometimes felt like you were in a dark pit and you couldn't find your way out. He calls the Lord his salvation. David had experienced over and over again the rescue of God and the light of God breaking into his thick and troubling darkness. And he asks a question in the middle of verse 1. If the Lord, the self-existent one, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, is my light and my salvation, who compares to him? Whom shall I fear if the God of eternity, peerless in power, full of grace and mercy, is for me? I don't have to be afraid of anyone. He goes on to say at the end of verse one, he's my stronghold. And he's the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When I was a kid, my parents used to take us in our Suburban and our Airstream trailer out to the Rockies in Colorado and Wyoming. We would alternate year by year. And we didn't do all the fun beach things that all my friends did. We hiked and we ate ham sandwiches in the mountains. This is what we did. I remember one day in particular, we were hiking around in the mountains of Colorado. It was my dad and my younger brother and me. And as often happens in the mountains in the afternoons, a thunderstorm broke out and we had stayed out too long and we couldn't make it back to our Airstream trailer. So my dad found this really big pine tree that was enough off the ground that we could crawl under it where all the pine needles were. And, and I'll never forget that feeling of being under that big pine tree in the middle of the Rockies in Colorado with my dad and my little brother while it was torrentially pouring outside of us and we were as dry as we could be. I remember him telling me that that's what the deer did. I thought that was really cool because I was like a deer. But I'll never forget the, the safety of being under there with my dad. I wasn't in a castle. There weren't ramparts. That, that there weren't uh, archers on the, on the walkways. There weren't, it wasn't a drawbridge. There wasn't a moat. There wasn't a, an army attacking us. But I remember that feeling, and I'll never forget, I was probably seven or eight, of being totally safe in the middle of something that was relatively dangerous. David had learned this. David, as a young man, was charged with being out in the pasture to take care of the sheep, and wild animals were there, and not like squirrels and foxes like we have here in central Ohio, bears and lions, and God protected him from all. 
David had stood up to a giant, the greatest warrior of his day from Philistia, and had slain him with a rock and a sling. David had been pursued by the king that he had formerly served, Saul, all around the countryside in the promised land, all the way to Philistia, through the land of the heathen. And God protected him through all of that. David had not lived in a castle behind the walls of protection, but his God had been his stronghold all the days of his life. And David had learned with experience that he need not be afraid. David had experienced verse two. Think of the imagery of verse two. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, they're like ravenous wolves who want to devour me. He had experienced this. These adversaries and foes, what had happened to them? Like King Saul, they are the ones who had stumbled and fallen, and God preserved David through all of this. He had experienced, verse 3, when it felt like the whole world was arrayed against him like an army, he knew that he need not be afraid. And even though war arose against him, and it did over and over, he could be confident. And so I say to you, my friends today, we don't have to be crippled by fear even when life is treacherous. There is nowhere where we can go and hide to avoid all of our troubles. We're going to face them. They're going to arise in our marriages. They're going to come up between us and our kids. Work is going to be hard. We're going to struggle with neighbors We're going to struggle with finances. We're going to struggle with our health. We're going to struggle with untrue things being said about us. We're going to struggle with with poor leadership in our various spheres of life and struggle with knowing how to deal with that. We are going to face trials. We cannot avoid it. The hope for us is not that we run away from trials because they'll find us. The hope is that in the midst of our trials, we need not fear for God will always, always care for his own. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 13, verses five and six, keep your life free from love of money. Often our troubles revolve around money, don't they? And be content with what you have. For one has said, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear What can man do to me? We don't have to be crippled by fear. In verses four through six, I think that David would have us understand that the reason we don't have to be crippled by fear is that the Lord will satisfy us and deliver us. And how does God satisfy us? Verse four, he satisfies us with with himself. And that is counterintuitive for the way that much of us, most of us think. Many of us think that we are satisfied when we have all the things that we need. What David is saying here, and and you must remember parenthetically that David had everything. What did David lack? David could snap his fingers, speak his mind, and what he wanted would be given to him. David lacked nothing from a worldly perspective. 
He was as wealthy and as powerful as you could imagine. But what satisfied David? It wasn't a beautiful home. It wasn't a gold-covered throne. It wasn't wives. It wasn't crowns. It wasn't conquest. What satisfied David was God himself. He wanted to be in the presence of God. Notice that in verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. It's a bit of a metaphor here because the temple itself would not be built by David, but by his son Solomon. But by temple, he means where, where God dwells among his people, to be in God's presence. If I'm being honest, I read verse 4 and I, I feel pretty guilty. Because often, if I'm being honest, I love the gifts that he gives often far more than I love him. And you know what he does whenever my heart begins to go that way? He puts his finger on the gifts. And sometimes he removes them for a period. Because he tests me to see if I love the things that he gives more than I love him. And instinctively, I have learned over time that often my troubles, at least in part, and hear me, not holistically, but at least in part, are used to expose the idols of my heart. What David is saying to me and to us today is that we must find our deepest satisfaction in God alone. And often, one of the primary lessons that God teaches us through our trials is that He Himself and He alone is our deepest treasure and the only one who can satisfy us. And that, my friends, is one of the hard lessons of growing up, is it not? And it's one of the reasons I don't want to go back because that lesson has been hard-earned. He has put his finger often on my finances. He has put his finger on my health and the health of those around me. He has put his finger on my inability to be a perfect parent or a perfect pastor so many times. Why? so that I will remember that my identity is not in my performance or my possessions. My deepest treasure is not in what I own or what I can do. My deepest treasure is in God himself. And David had learned this same lesson that God is teaching us through very many difficult circumstances. In verse 5, God will hide David as he had in times past in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent and lift me high upon a rock. When it seems like the world is is set up against us like an army, we turn to God and he is the one who will lift us up. David had learned in verse 6 that even though his enemies had sought to pursue his life and to destroy him, that God would protect him and take care of them. That even in the midst of his trials, he could sing and make melody, which means that even whenever we are struggling to the deepest extent, we can still have joy. If this is the line of equilibrium for most people, most of us tend to live kind of right around that line. But there are, there are those among us, even in our church family, who, who live above that line. They're, they're always happy, right? Like nothing ever gets them down. 
some of us live a little bit below that line. I live a little bit below that line. I tend to be a little bit melancholy. When I have a day that's sort of equilibrium, I'm, I'm pretty happy. Uh, that's just the way God made me. But, but most of us live kind of right around that line. We don't get too high. We don't necessarily get too low. What David is saying here in verse six is gonna look a little bit different for each of us. For those of you who always live above that line, whenever you have a really great day, I struggle to be around you. I'm just being honest. So maybe tone it down a little bit. I'm, I'm totally kidding, totally kidding. Um, likewise, it's hard sometimes to be around the people who live well below the line, but, but they struggle and, and sometimes we have to meet them where they're at. So verse six is gonna look a little bit different for each of us. Doesn't mean that you're gonna run around like a crazy person and sing out loud, although if that's your bent and predisposition, more power to you. But it, it means that we can have joy and confidence in the midst of our trials, not in spite of them. David is communicating to us here in this passage that, that trouble is inevitable, but we can trust God in the midst of it. He goes on to teach us in verses seven through 12 that the Lord will never abandon us. So verses four through six, he will satisfy us and deliver us, but he will never abandon us. So again, just logically, we don't have to be crippled by fear, verses one through three, because verses four through six, he will satisfy and deliver us. And furthermore, he will never abandon us. Verse 10 is frankly one of the most striking verses in all of the Old Testament. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. What was going on in David's experience? We don't, we don't know anything about this literally happening to him. But we know from verse seven that, that he's in trouble. Notice in verse seven, he says, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. This is where the lament really sort of kicks in in Psalm 27. Be gracious to me and answer me. God has said to David, seek my face. And David responds in verse eight by saying, I will seek you. David's fully aware of his own sin in verse nine. It's, it's possible that often in our, in our times of lament that we have contributed to our troubles. That's often true for us. He says to God in verse nine, don't hide your face from me. Please forgive me in other words. Don't cast me off. Don't forsake me. But verse 10 perhaps David's just speaking in hyperbole. In other words, if, if the most troubling thing conceivable could happen to you, even in that time when you feel totally abandoned, God won't abandon you. But this isn't hyperbole for some of us, is it? Some of us have had the worst things happen to us. Some of us sitting here today look back on our relationship with our parents and we only, we only feel bitterness. We feel abandonment. Some of us are raising children through adoption or foster care whose lives are racked with the trauma, brokenness, and the bitter effects of sin. But my friends, even in those moments when we feel like the worst possible thing, the most unnatural thing, consider a mother or a father abandoning their child. It seems inconceivable. 
but it happens. And you might be shocked if I were to start pointing at people and telling you their story, even people sitting here today, how often that has happened in this church. And do you know why Satan does that? Why does Satan bring the most unthinkable and treacherous things to pass? Where even parents give up on their kids. I think he does it because he thinks it can discredit our view of God himself. For if you have a broken relationship with your parents, it may well lead you to have a skewed view of the goodness of God. And Satan is always doing his dead level best to confuse us and to lead us to not trust in the goodness of God. But I say to you, those of you who have felt the brokenness of even the worst abandonment by parents or others, that the Lord will take you in. David, as far as we know, had never been abandoned by his earthly parents. But David had a wife who hated him. David had a son who tried to take the kingdom away from him. David had close confidence who, confidants who turned their backs on him. David knew what it was like to undergo the treachery of lost and broken relationships. But does Jesus not know this? This psalm points us back to the Lord Jesus. When Jesus was on the cross in Matthew chapter 27, after the darkness had descended upon the land, he cries out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus underwent the abandonment of his own father so that we would never feel abandoned. And in Acts chapter 2, the passage Michael led us in a bit ago when Peter preaches his sermon at Pentecost, he proclaims to the people that God would never leave his son abandoned to the treachery of Sheol, of the grave, of Hades, of hell. But through resurrection, he had brought him back to victory and to reconciled relationship for us. Jesus underwent abandoned by his father so that we would never be abandoned. And at least in part, my friends, this is the beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. That the abandonment that he underwent willingly on the cross was meant to bring us eternal, peaceful reconciliation with our creator. In Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, Paul tells us that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, part of being united to Christ is the knowledge that we will suffer in this life. But what is coming for us? We who are united to the one who was abandoned so that we wouldn't be abandoned. It's hope, and we will not turn here today, but you know these verses well. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, that if God did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? He goes on to ask the question, what can separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is nothing. What can separate us from the love of God? The answer is nothing. Nothing. 
And that is the hope of the gospel, my friends, that David experienced himself hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus ever came and that Jesus fully realized on our behalf that even in the deepest and darkest of trials, when the most unthinkable things happen, that we can trust our God. And so we come now to the end of our passage for today in verses 13 and 14. It's sort of bookended by hope. We don't have to be crippled by fear, verses 1 through 3. Why? Because the Lord will satisfy and deliver us and will never abandon us. And then David ends on a note of hope in verses 13 and 14. We don't have to be fearful and we can trust the Lord. He says in verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In other words, it would come before he died. There is coming a day when there'll be no more pain and struggle and harmony will characterize all of our relationships with God and one another. But, but usually in this life, God brings redemption and David had seen it before and he believed it would happen again. And verse 14 is profound. We will end here today. It's profound because David is not just talking about his own experience. He's calling out to the people of Israel and to us, wait for the Lord. In other words, here is what I have experienced. I have learned that I don't have to be afraid because God will always satisfy me and deliver me. God will never abandon me. And he calls out to his people to experience and believe the same things. And so I say to you today, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. He will satisfy you. He will deliver you. And even if everyone around you abandons you and turns their back on you in the most treacherous of ways, God won't. He will keep his promises to you. You can trust him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now by your spirit, you who have suffered abandonment from God so that we don't have to ever experience it again, we ask that by your spirit you will take these words and implant them in our hearts and in our minds and transform our thinking and our affections for your glory, for our joy, and for the good of many. We pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Let's